Please remain standing, if you would, and turn to uh, the book of Romans, chapter 6. We'll begin reading in verse 15 and read through the end of the chapter. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness." I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The grass withers, flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You for the standard of teaching that You have laid down for us in Your Word. Fathers, as we look at this text this morning, may Your Spirit work in our hearts. Convict us, Lord, where we need to be convicted. Challenge us where we need to be challenged and encourage us, Lord, where we need to be encouraged. I ask, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Christ I ask. Amen. Thomas Costain's history, The Three Edwards, describes the life of Reynald III, who was a 14th century duke in what is now... Denmark, uh, Belgium. Um, Reynald was grossly overweight, and uh, in fact, he was often called by his Latin name, which uh, is Crassus, which means fat. His younger brother Edward, um, after a violent argument with Reynald, staged a rebellion, a successful rebellion, and uh, captured Reynald. He didn't kill him, but what he did was he built a a room around Reynald in the Newark Castle. And he told him, "You you can receive your land and title back when you can leave the room. Which wouldn't have been hard for most people because there were windows in the room. There was a door of normal size. 
But Edward, knowing his older brother, every day would have delicious foods sent to the room. And uh, when he was when uh, he was accused by others as being cruel to his brother, Edward had a ready answer. He says, "My brother's not a prisoner. He may leave whenever he so wills." Reynald stayed in that room for 10 years. And actually the only reason he was able to come out was because Edward was killed in a battle. But by that time, Reynald's health had so deteriorated that uh, within a year he himself died. A prisoner to his own appetites. Or we might say a slave to his own appetites. Slaves is used seven times in these nine verses in this passage of Scripture. It comes up in response to another anticipated question. Now, because we're picking up here in the middle of chapter 6, it helps to give some context here. Uh, The book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul when he was staying at Corinth on his third missionary journey. It was written to the believers in Rome, which he had never met, and they didn't know him, they hadn't met him. But Paul intends to take the gospel to Spain and to go through Rome and stop in Rome on the way, trusting that the church there would help him take the gospel on beyond to new lands, to take the gospel where it's never been before. And so he kind of lays out his view of the gospel in this letter. It's really about the main theme of Romans is really the righteousness of God. And... Paul tells us in chapter 1 that uh, he's not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as, and he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, or perhaps more accurately translated, the righteous by faith shall live. But the righteousness of God is not not the only thing that's revealed. In the gospel, he goes on in the next verse of verse 18 and says the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth. Though they knew God, they neither acknowledged Him as God or gave thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, worshiping and serving created things rather than the Creator. And so Paul, like a, like a prosecuting attorney, begins his case against man using the Old Testament, using the law. And uh, he begins with the, the person who's totally godless there in, in chapter 1, 18 and following. And then, he's, then in chapter 2, he begins by speaking about religious people. Uh, and religion was, was all over the Roman Empire at that time. Greeks, Romans, they all believed in God, in gods, polytheistic. And Paul says, you know, you don't, you don't keep the law either. And then he goes on to to bring up Jews who are monotheistic, who believe in one God, and he says, you know, you you teach the law, but you don't keep it yourselves. And he summarizes in chapter 3 and said, no human being will be justified or declared righteous in the sight of God by the works of the law. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is, declared righteous, by faith. 
And as his chief witness, he calls Abraham. And says, Abraham, the scripture says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Because, and, and that faith took place before Abraham was circumcised, indicating that the law had nothing to do with it. It was by faith. And then in chapter 5, he, he, he brings out some of the benefits of being declared righteous in the sight of God, being reconciled to God. We have peace with God. We are no longer enemies of God. We are friends of God. We've been, we have been reconciled. And then he, he, he kind of gives a, a short piece here at the end of chap, chapter 5, verses 12 and following, uh, how, how this all began in terms of two representatives, Adam and Christ. They're both, they're, Adam is a type of Christ, he says. They're both representatives. And we come into this world in Adam. And, what, and being in Adam, that word in is very important, in Adam we, are, we have solidarity with him so that when Adam sinned, we sinned. And in that, our whole, our whole nature is in, a, in essence spiritually dead to God. We're separated from God. But, as Ephesians 1, 4 says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And Christ is a representative of those who, who have faith. He's a representative. And, and again, the solidarity, the union with Christ, and that phrase, in Christ, that is, when Christ died, we died. When He rose, we rose. His righteousness is our righteousness. That solidarity of being in Christ is very important. And so he ends chapter 5 by saying, So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that, and that brings up a question. And he anticipates this question and says, What then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he goes on to answer that saying that, you know, if we've been united with Him in verse, in verse 5, in a death like His, we shall certainly, certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that the old self was crucified with Him in order that, and here's the, here's the point here, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And He... And he closes that section in verse 14 saying, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And of course, that he anticipates the next question after saying that. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? So the inference is that, you know, since we're not under law, we may, it's okay to transgress the law. That the law doesn't have any relevance to us anymore, therefore we may sin. Now it's it's a fallacious inference, granted. And Paul is emphatic in his denial. May it never be! Perish the thought of that. Not being under law in no way releases us from the obligation to conformity to the law. And gives us no license to sin. You know, in one sense, the believer uh, is, is not under law. But in another sense, he is. 
Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, said this, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being under the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. In other words, we're not under the law as a means of salvation. And the reason is we can't, we can't keep it. We're, we're, we, we, are, we are saved by grace through faith, not by the works of the law. But the law does express God's will for His people. And in following the, the following verses, Paul proceeds to show us how intolerable the inference is that we may sin because we're not under the law but under grace. So in verses 16 to 18, he tells us what we are to know, or probably more accurate, what we are to understand. The word used there for know is oida, which has more the meaning of understand. What are we to understand here? Verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, your slaves are the one whom you obey? Think of Reynald there. You're slaves to the one you obey. Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now the key phrase there is, present yourselves as obedient slaves. This is, this is a willing obedience when we present ourselves. Now this doesn't include the, this doesn't include the unwilling yielding to sin that Paul will talk about in the next chapter but this is a person who's willingly obeying sin the question of a person's being free in the sense of having no master at all doesn't come into play here at all either we have sin as our master or God those are the only two alternatives the one ends in death the other in life with God. The emphasis on obedience shows that obedience to God is the criterion, or you might say the evidence of our devotion to Him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And and it's important when we think about sanctification, which, which is the subject here, It's important not to separate uh, what we know from our devotion to Christ. Uh, The relationship is never to be out of the picture here. Because we are in Christ, that relationship is so important. So obedience is really the criterion or or you might say the evidence for devotion to Him. Verse 17 But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. This really has a form of a a prayer of thanksgiving to God. Instead of praising the Roman Christians here, Paul gives thanks to God. It is God who brought about this dramatic change. And we read about God's promise in Ezekiel that that change would take place. That He would put His Spirit in us and give us 
a heart of flesh and put His Spirit within us and cause us to walk in His ways. The emphasis rests upon the change that took place when they came to obey the form or or standard of teaching here. And which raises the question, what is the standard of teaching? Well, um, when Paul wrote to Timothy, he said this in the second letter to Timothy. He said, follow the pattern of the sound words that you heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And writing to another elder, Titus, speaking about elders in chapter 1, he says, He, an elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. It is the sound teaching that they had gotten through the apostles, and which we have in the scriptures. The change that took place in their hearts showed itself by their obedience from the heart to this standard of teaching. That, that is, a, it was a wholehearted desire to walk in obedience to God. And that's what the change does when the Spirit works in our hearts. When we're changed on the inside, we, we desire to walk with God. We're thankful for what He has done for us in Christ. Uh, when we realize that, that grace, that, that salvation is a free gift from God, totally by grace, nothing we earn or deserve, we, we're thankful for Him and we desire to walk in His ways. Now, notice, I want you to notice the verb committed here, that they were committed, to which you were committed, is passive. Literally means you were given over to that standard of teaching. You might think that uh, Paul would say that the standard of teaching was given over to you. But that's not what he says. You were given over to this standard of teaching. This indicates that their devotion to the gospel, to the good news, was a total commitment. They had given over to it. They were convinced of its truth and convinced of the great steadfast love of the Lord that they were committed to following Him and to following that teaching. These these observations are really confirmed by verse 18 where he says, And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Again, notice the passive verbs. That they were subjects of deliverance from sin. They didn't deliver themselves. They were delivered from sin. And they were made to become slaves of righteousness. Again, righteousness is the theme. The righteousness of God is the theme of this whole letter. They were made slaves of righteousness. And that's all thanks goes to God. He changed our hearts so that we desire to follow after Him in obedience. These are, these are truths that we are to understand and grasp that God has worked a work in our lives and is continuing to work in our lives through His Spirit, causing us to walk in His ways. So, what are we to do? Verse 19. 
I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Now, speaking in, speaking in human terms, he's referring to using the term slavery. Because everybody was familiar with the institution of slavery back then. It was common. Slavery was common. And so he's using that to express the truth that he's presenting here. I mean, after all, we know that new life in Christ is not slavery. Uh, in fact, uh, as, it, as it exists among men, uh, it's what Chrysostom called that, that it's better than any freedom. But Paul's conscious of the fact that we as believers are prone to forget the obligations involved in being under grace. We can talk about grace so much that we forget we have something to do. We have some obligations here. And the exhortation is in terms both kind of a parallel and a contrast. The parallel comes out in the construction of the sentence there. So as one thing was true, so now let something else be true. That's the parallel here. As you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Impurity really reflects the the corruption and the defilement to which we were dedicated to before. When we offered our members, that is, our eyes, our hands, our mouth, our feet, to unrighteousness, to impurity. But now we are to offer those members up, including our minds, our eyes, ears, mouth, hands, feet, up to righteousness, leading to sanctification. You know, John says in 1 John 3, 4, that sin is lawlessness. And so as we once presented our members to that, so now present them to righteousness leading to sanctification. And the pair, so so now present, again, it's a a willingness, it's a willing obedience to do that. It's a willing commitment on our part to do that. And the command, that's, that's the command, so present your members. It's the only command in this passage. So there's no question about what we are to do here. We are to present our members as instruments of righteousness leading to sanctification. Paul, when Paul wrote to the Philippians, he said, he said this, he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for or because it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. So, here's the thing. As as God is working in us, we are to work it out in our lives. We are to present our members as instruments of righteousness. The 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 work of sanctification is synergistic. That is, it's... It's a work 
of cooperation between us and God. Justification is monergistic. God alone does it. We do nothing. Sanctification is a work of cooperation with God. God works in us by His Holy Spirit, giving us the will and the power to obey. And we are to act it out. We are to, we are to live it out. Both God and, uh, and we are active in this process. The contrast appears in the kind of slavery rendered and the result of, of each one of those. Each, each. So in our former state, it was slavery to impurity and lawlessness. And now it's slavery to righteousness. In our former state, the end goal or the result was more lawlessness. But the end goal here is sanctification. Actually, that word can also be translated holiness, which I believe is the, would be the correct way to in this uh, in this instant at the end of verse 19. It generally refers to uh, not a process but a state. A state of holiness. Holiness of heart. Without which, Scripture says, no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. The emphasis really falls upon this once for all break with sin. And a commitment to righteousness. And God enables all of it to happen. By His Spirit working in us. He enables it all to take place. Well, so what is the outcome for each option? Verses uh, 20 to 23, starting verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So the general sense of verse 20 here is that really, one cannot be a slave of sin and a slave of righteousness at the same time. It's impossible. When they were slaves of sins, their hearts were undivided. They were totally committed to that. A willing obedience to sin. But when they were slaves or voluntary slaves of sin, I mean that was their only sin was their only master. It's the only master they knew. Which begs the question, how did that work out for you? <laughs> That's what Paul is saying here. He says, well, you know, what benefit, what fruit, verse 21 were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed of? You know, if you think back over your life before you came to Christ, how do you how do you view that that life at that time? Believers are ashamed of their past life before they came to Christ. They look at that and they say, I was so off. I was, I was going my own way, following my own desires. It was all about me. And, and they're ashamed of that past life. This is, this is really the mercy of God. That we are more humble before God and more reliant upon His grace. 
God wants us to bring us to His His intention, and it's in His mercy that He brings us to that point where we are ashamed of that, and we and we confess it, and repent, and cry out to God for mercy. The end result of slavery to sin is death, and not not just physical death, but also but also includes the ultimate death. Of eternal damnation. And if we, before we came to Christ, if we looked down the road, if we could see where the end, what all that was ending at, we would have, we would have turned away from it probably. But we didn't see it. We can't, we didn't see the end result. We, well, that's not, that's not going to happen to me. Fortunately, you see, deliverance from the slavery of sin interrupts that process. That sequence. And our sins are removed, taken away, cast as far as the east is from the west, and remembered no more. Praise God. Where sin is removed from God, they're, they're, moved, they're removed from God now and forever. When God sees us, He sees the righteousness of Christ. Because that's what it means to be in Christ. His righteousness becomes ours. Paul, Paul says in, the, in chapter 1, 1 Corinthians, the end of that, toward the end of that chapter, Christ Jesus is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Verse 22 But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So this shows the, the conspicuous contrast with verse 21. Verse 21 shows the fruitlessness, the shame, and the death which follows in the wake of sin. Here, This verse shows the fruit and the end result of deliverance from sin, eternal life. Notice again the passive verbs here in verse 22. You have been set free from sin. You have become slaves of God. That is, you, you have been made to become slaves of God. Again, this is God doing this. This is God working. We didn't do this ourselves. Slaves of God, the, you know, the relationship with God here, the personal relationship, again, is never suppressed. The personal relationship is very important. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not law in the sense that we normally think of, uh, I, don't want, I don't want to do this because of the punishment that will happen. It's because it's, 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 I want to follow Christ because of what He's done for me. Totally different outlook. And the fruit leads to sanctification or holiness and it's in eternal life. In the service of sin there was no fruit. Now they have fruit unto holiness. And this fruit bearing has a final result in eternal life. It's important to realize 
that those who have been set free from the penalty of sin because, because sin has been removed by Christ. It's been removed. And have eternal life now. See, not, not after we die. We have it now. We have a life now that will never end. If we can live in that in that thought, you know, uh, Paul says in in Corinthians, First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, chapter five, if anyone was in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creation. We 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 are now in a new environment here. We're in the kingdom of God. Yeah, we're still citizens of this world. We still live in this world, but we are. In the, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And that will never change. We have eternal life now. And that life of God is by virtue of being in Christ. Which God did. Again, keep in mind the, the already but not yet. We're living in that kingdom, but we, we, we don't experience the full benefits of it until glory. The Christian life is a process, not a state. But we but that is the end state. And it's assured in Christ. Paul said back in chapter five, by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So verse twenty three For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, you could compare this triumphant conclusion here of uh, chapter 6 with with the conclusion of chapter 5. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, there's a new element here in chapter 6 because he says, not through Christ Jesus our Lord, but in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, the, the solidarity with Christ, the unity with Christ. Mainly, what comes out here in, chapter, in verse 23 is the contrast between wages and free gift. You know, wages is something we earn, we know about wages. You know, you, you get, say, $15 an hour, it's your wage. It's something you earn. You work for that. Here, it's the wages that we've earned by a life given over to sin. We've earned that. And on the other hand, unmerited favor is that by which we receive eternal life. We didn't earn that. It's by grace. It's by God's grace. Death is earned. Eternal life is received. It is purely by grace. Death really is, death is the wages that sin pays. He says the wages of sin, but it's a, that's a, what, what uh, grammar calls a, a generative of subject. It's, it's the wages that sin gives. And that, that wage is death. We receive exactly what we're owed in that life of sin. 
God graces in contrast see, to that to that notion of remuneration, that, no, that notion of earning it here. And the magnitude of this grace is emphasized by the nature of the gift. It's eternal life. That's how great the gift is. Eternal life. A life with God. When one day we'll see face to face. And we'll know Him as He is. The precise thought here is that this free gift consists in eternal life. Eternal life is the gift. And it's totally out of line to, to with the contrast, totally out of line with this contrast to try to import merit in any form into the method of salvation. There is no place for merit here at all. It is totally the gift of God. And it's in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus our Lord. None of the blessings bestowed by the Father are ever apart from Christ. Nor are they enjoy except in union with Him. That solidarity with Him. So let me close with this application here. Again, back to verse 19. Present your members. The work of sanctification begins with a change, an inward change, which we call regeneration. To be born from above, to be born again, which God does. His Spirit changes our hearts. Gives us a new heart. And we're, and we're born. We're babes in Christ at the beginning. If you think of natural birth, that baby comes into the, into the world and they, they, they've got a lot of growing to do. Not, they don't come into the world as full adults and we don't come into the Christian life as full adult, mature Christians. It's a process that takes place. And the work is gradual. And it is a constant battle. But we are to work hard. Now I've been I've been studying Second Peter here for upcoming Sunday school class, and in the first chapter, Peter says, "Make every effort." You see the, the emphasis on doing. Make every effort to supplement with your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. And then he says, matter of verse 10, therefore be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. It's work. It's, it's work. And, and we have to be intentional about that growth about growing because the Spirit intends to show us to convict us of sin in our lives. Again, it's, it's, a, it's a work of God and man together. But think about think, think of it this way of how this works. Often we think, you know, before, before we come to Christ, we think, well, you know, I'm not that bad a person. You know, I, I, 
I don't do any really bad things. I mean, I'm not like Joe down the street or whatever. But when we become a Christian and we continue to grow, it's like it's like a person who's walking at night in the woods after a heavy rain and falls down in the mud. But he doesn't see how muddy he is. He, he can feel stuff on him. But there's one of those dust to lights up there and he's walking toward that. And the closer and closer he gets to the light, the more and more mud he sees. That's the, that's the way it is when we grow in our Christian life. The more, the closer we get to the Lord, the more we follow after Him, the more we see how much sin is still there. So rather than feeling proud about our progress, we're humble at how much more we have to go yet. And that's, that's the grace of God. It's the work of God in our lives in our lives to encourage us to keep looking at it and get it off. (laughs) To be free from it. It's a battle that we must wage daily. But at the same time, God is working in us. It is God who works in us both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. We're not on our own, you see. God is working with us. But we have a responsibility to work hard. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this word of the Apostle Paul to these believers in Rome. Thank you for its word to us this morning, Father. Help us, Lord. Remind us, Father, all that you have done for us in Christ. Increase, Lord, our love and devotion to you, our thanksgiving to you for what you have done for us. Empower us, Father, to walk that out in our lives. To commit to present our members to you as instruments of righteousness. That you would receive all the glory and praise. In Christ we ask. Amen.